My name is Jason Fleming. And my name is Julie Muir. And this is the More Than My Past podcast from from the the Forward Trust. In this series of More Than My Past, we're exploring some of the prominent themes in most stories of prison, addiction and recovery. Today, we'll be looking at the importance of education and work. It won't come as a surprise that a lot of our guests on this podcast struggled at school. In most cases, that's come as a result of the difficult upbringings many of them have had. But as you'll hear, returning to education later on has been a big force in a number of these turnaround stories. So is finding meaningful employment, especially when it's related to lived experience. Remember, if you're looking for help with any of the issues we raise on More Than My Past, you can access Forward's Reach Out online chat service at forwardtrust.org.uk. But if you're in crisis right now and you need to speak to someone, ring up the Samaritans on 116-123. Talking about our school lives, Jules, and uh, the influences we had, it's all about the teachers, isn't it? If you have a teacher, if you find that teacher that believes in you, you see it on every advert for the teaching profession. For me, wanting to be an actor, there was a teacher there that was like, that's what you should do, and didn't say you need a safety net and become a plumber. They were like, that's what you have to do, Jason. That's what you're going to do. And so I always had that direction support um, from one teacher, and, the, and uh, that made a huge difference. Yeah. I think, looking back, I don't think there was that one teacher yeah. that that was like that for me because one of the first primary schools I was sent to, my mum was single parent, Irish. We were bullied by the teachers. Right. So there was this r- real... Um, yeah, bully culture of if you didn't fit into the school environment or you didn't come from a home with a mum and a dad or you didn't have a car, then you were kind of singled out and yeah. segregated. It was really difficult. I think I'd already come off the rails mm-hmm. before I'd got to secondary school. So for them, it was all about damage limitation, trying to yeah. keep me in the school grounds. I remember at one point my dad would drop me to school. He'd take me to the top gate. And then I'd walk through the school, straight out the tennis courts, down the other side, down to the shop, get a packet of fags, and I was off. That was it. And it's really difficult as well. I always think about school as a square box. And if you're not a square... You don't fit into yeah, that. No. So they talk now, you know, now is the the phrase is sort of neurodiverse and neurotypical. Mm-hmm. So if you're neurotypical, you can sort of f- navigate your way through mainstream school. Yeah. But if you've got any sort of diversity issues in terms of, you know, ADHD Attention. or autism and things like that, then it's a really difficult environment because it's so squeezed into the academic tick box yeah. exercise that it leaves out create room for creativity yeah. which a lot of children need to be able to grow and flourish so it's very difficult yeah. we've interviewed several successful former prisoners and people in recovery in this series listen to our earlier episode called introduction to series two for more about their backstories now let's find out a little about their experience at school Michael Balligan is an in-demand British actor, but as we've heard in previous episodes, he had a really difficult childhood involving his single mum going to prison. Naturally, that situation made concentrating on school very difficult, and he told us how he went to live with his aunt, who didn't necessarily have the same value of education as he did. Before she went away, I was actually like pretty good in school because I could see that me doing well in school, my mum really liked that. You know, when you're young, like there's a way you kind of, like as kids, you work out like ways to get love from your parents yeah that's pleasing and i could see that me doing good in school that's what she liked like you know oh junior come and give me a hug i love you so that's what i was always on that i don't know why but i just loved it and i love to read as well so um yeah like 
before that, I used to love school. I loved getting, trying to get the top marks in this test mm. and all that kind of thing. And then when she went to prison and I went into care for a little bit, then I moved in with my aunt. My aunt had four kids of her own. And I remember consciously being a child thinking, like, aunt, look at this homework I've done. I've mm. got, you know, all the marks right. And her being like, yeah, go. And it, it wasn't a thing anymore. Yeah. It didn't matter as much. And I remember it was a big loss for me because that's how I used to, I used to get a lot of love from that. But as time developed and I got used to living at my aunt's in this area that I didn't really know, school started to mean less and less to me. I didn't care about it. I actually hated it, if I'm honest with you, because it was just a different rhythm to what I'd known my whole life. A bit like Michael, Jane Shea was a bright pupil who lacked the right support at home to flourish at school. She feels those difficulties contributed to her addiction problems. So I, I was putting like the highest sets from my from my junior school, but then I had no idea how to come home and sit myself down and do homework. My my mum didn't really think that that was. I don't remember ever remember her saying don't do it. She didn't, but there was no. She didn't hadn't she hadn't had that, and she didn't know how to give it to me. So after the first year at um, secondary school, I remember I remember I packed a bag by my front by my back door because I knew that when my mum went up to the school to see the teachers, I, it was going to be really a bad report. I remember my mum coming home and being devastated, and she said to me, "Why didn't you warn me?" It was really hard for her to hear those things about me. So how she dealt with that was she just never went. She just never went back again. She said, I'm not going back to the school to hear that, those horrible things about you. So that kind of gave me carte blanche, really, to kind of to not have to, to do anything at school. And what happened was I started getting destructive. I started to cause trouble in the classroom, um, bunking off. So, yeah, that, that was when I, I can really say from then that that was when my life started getting difficult. How, yeah. how, what was that progression like for you, Jane? What was addiction like for you? So initially, what happened was, go, taking it on from that school thing, you remember like you, you have your options and you've got to pick options. And I remember thinking, I have no idea about what I want to choose. And I remember clearly thinking that it's easier to use drugs than to to make these choices it kind of brings it back to me and to just where I'm at and it takes away that world that world out there of what I don't know what's going on it felt safer um so it it's it started off how it usually starts off and I we used to meet up but we, there was this group of girls and I used to hang around these flats and um there was there was a lot of us there's probably about 30 of us but when I look back on it there was about five or six of us that ended out of that group that ended up going down the path that kind of we went down with the drugs and then eventually I think there was actually three of us that ended up getting in getting caught up in addiction and I remember one of those girls now is I know she is married I don't see her anymore she's she finally kind of sort kind of sorted herself out and she's got she's married and she's got a child the other one is dead and then there's me. Liz Jones is now a university lecturer and never lacked natural intelligence she says if anything she found school too easy Addiction got in the way of her career before she found recovery. So when I was at school, um, I was very much like my son is now, and I'm constantly on his back. I was one of those kids that just knew it instantly. I only had to hear it once, and I knew it. And all my school reports used to say, Elizabeth can't rely on her innate ability in this subject when it comes time for exams. After my exams, it was it would appear Elizabeth has 
um, relied on her innate ability. I never had to study. I never had to revise. I just got it. And when I was at school, I wanted to be a doctor or an archaeologist. And even that, you know, I was going to school on, on drugs. Or I don't know if they did pick up on it. If they did, they didn't do anything about it. Um, but I, I was still, you know, I, I got 12 GCSEs, all grade C and above, you know, taking drugs and everything. I didn't, I kind of forgot that I was not to be big headed or anything, but I, I was intelligent. In terms of employment and everything, I just went from job to job working in taxi offices. I, I did work for a national DIY chain as a buyer. So I, I still make, even throughout the worst of my addiction, I still maintained really strong sort of work ethic. Um, I mean, I used to fall in sick quite a lot. The amount of amateurs, nanas and granddads that died when, you know, throughout the years was unbelievable. But I never I never tried doing anything more. It was it was basically just getting the money to to buy drugs, basically. Former prisoner Marie Claire O'Brien's memories of school are overwhelmingly positive until traumatic experiences changed the course of her life. I had a good education that I enjoyed. I loved school. Didn't have any issues with it because I had a stable, solid background. It was only when things changed when I hit 15, really. So 15 was my pivotal year, I'd say, where things kind of took a turn for the worse in terms of my parents getting divorced and I was knifed at school randomly. So traumas and things like that and kind of cropping up. Got to be honest, you know, there's a part of me which was a bit bigoted and I just presumed that if you didn't have a good education, you had no natural intelligence. And I've, that's been proven wrong to me a million times, you know, that some of those guys, some of those people that have never had any real formal schooling are incredibly astute and have an entrepreneurial way about them which can actually be quite creative in the, in the, the realms of the crimes they commit. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I always laugh when I say I, I left school with nine A's, nine absences. I never did one GCSE. I'd left school at, I think it, I was 14, 15 when I left school. Never went into any of a, you know, sixth form or anything like that, but have navigated my way through life on experience mm, yeah. and doing jobs that require experience and lived experience as well. And more, you know, not necessarily academic, but I'm very much a people person, yeah. you know, and I can talk my way into situations and, and be quite sort of, you know, open to different groups of people as well. So I think it doesn't necessarily mean that if you haven't had a great education, then you're going to fail in life. I mean, you know, statistics will be stacked against you and it will be more difficult, but it doesn't mean that's a be-all and end-all. And I think that we need to enforce that message. I guess it's going to be like a double-edged sword, but two people at school, you know, that are struggling in in the education system, that there's more to life than just the education and you can get out there and experience and try different things to see which... Thing feels right and fits you yeah correct and just sort of reflecting back around the minute something impacts each of those people that we've spoken to whether it be trauma you know problems at home I think we're so far away from where we were back then in the school system now you've got amazing charities in place like place to be which is in most schools that offer counseling yeah. so you know because it's not it's not a straight line, is it, growing up? It's not an A to Z exercise. Stuff stuff happens and, you know, parents die or families split up or, mm-hmm. you know, so many things along the way. It's fantastic that you've got that bridge in the education system to be able to support children through the trauma to, to be able to continue to carry on in school. <laughs> Uh, 
Marie Claire returned to education later in life. She says doing so was massively important to the work she now does for her social enterprise, New Leaf. I've never thought for one minute I'd be sitting here seven years after starting New Leaf with an organisation that's still going and still supporting people successfully. But I thought it would fail if I had anything to do with it. Um, so I started my degree at the same time, literally the month before, um, part-time degree at Warwick, because I thought I'd need a plan B to fall back on. And I mean, it was the best thing I've ever done, just investing in myself. The degree really gave me the foundations of knowledge in terms of the criminal justice system, past, present, and potentially future. Every single assignment I did was on the criminal justice system, whether it be prison industry, prison education, through the gate support, St. Joel's Trust, you know, it was just, I was just accumulating information um, and knowledge at that point. So I'm a massive advocate of, of the power of education in transforming you and taking you from the place where you are to the place where you want to be. Going back into education was a vital step for Liz Jones on the road to doing what she does now. Years after being clean, my husband at the time um, said, go to college, do something with your life. And I said, don't be stupid. I can't. I'm stupid. They're not going to employ me because they ask about criminal convictions, you know, and I've got possession of class A's. They're not, they're not going to give me a chance. Um, well, they did. They, they accepted me on the course, which I was amazed about. And then the, the first assignment I got back, it was an English assignment, and I got a distinction on it. And I thought, watch it, yeah, I can do this. But I, I spoke to the lecturer first saying, you got that wrong. Well, yeah, I think you've given me the wrong grade. He was like, why? So then I explained everything. He was like, no. You know, and then we had this chat. He was like, Is that, you know, you're obviously intelligent. If, if, why haven't you done it till now? I think I was just like 34. And I was like, oh, he's going to employ me. Even if I go to college, even if I go to uni, no one's going to give me a job because I'm a next smackhead. And he's like, no, no. He said, trust me, you'll find that your experience is going to actually help with that. And I was like, bollocks. No, it's not. No, it's not. Finished the access course. And I didn't still didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, but I kind of enjoyed the crime and deviance module on, on the access course. And the local uni, University of Suffolk, um, did a criminology and youth studies course. So I was thinking, oh, I could do that. And actually, that would really help. So I was thinking that would really help, actually, if I did criminology and new studies, could maybe work for the Youth Offending Service or maybe, you know, the, the, the third sector agencies that work with, with the sort of diversion programmes before young people offend. That was my plan. That's what I want to do. That's what I wrote my personal statement around. And then my first ever criminology lecture here, this Glaswegian guy, he was just like so inspiring. I was thinking, do you know what, mate? I'm going to have your job. And as it turns out, I do now have his job. He's in a different role and I've got his job. So I, I wasn't wrong. Wow. I'm just in awe of, of your whole journey and your your career. Raph Chavis is in recovery and now a vicar. He's his own great recovery podcast called From Dope to Hope, which you can check out on YouTube. Raph didn't find school as easy as some of our other guests. His school years were marred by ADHD, mental health issues and trauma. But he also benefited from returning to education later on after finding recovery. I was so bad in school. Like It was so bad that at the age of 15, I left school and my father, you know, in Brazil, you pay for everything, right? You, you can buy your driving license, you can buy whatever you want. And my father basically paid for my diploma because I couldn't finish school. That's how bad it was. I didn't know that I had uh, ADHD. Uh, I didn't know that I had OCD as a child. Uh, I didn't know that I had a lot of mental health issues uh, and PTSD caused by my family dynamics. 
um, you know, uh, I was kidnapped in Brazil for over 23 hours, you know, with a shotgun in my hand, you know, a couple of times. And, you know, I was the, in the middle of shooting uh, in Brazil. Uh, that wasn't the understanding that I is today about mental health and ADHD and so on. So, yeah, school for me was a disaster. Like, uh, my mother used to beat me up because she thought I was just lazy and dumb. When in reality, I just couldn't concentrate. I just couldn't. Like, uh, the teacher would be speaking. I could see that her lips were moving, but I couldn't hear a word coming out of her mouth because I was counting how many tiles are on the wall or, or, or I don't know how many marks have gone in the palm of my hands. Do you know what I mean? I was always, like, somewhere else. Do you know what I mean? Treating my addiction and, and you know, with the steps and doing therapy and looking after this stuff, uh, I was able to finish a four years uh, theological degree. Uh, I passed all of my essays and I've never studied English in my life. Uh, when I came to the UK, all I could say was yes and no. And, and today I can write essays. I, you know, I'm, I'm writing a book at the moment. And I, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's, yeah, it's just mad because I, it, wasn't, it wasn't meant to be that way. When people come into recovery or they've, you know, recovered from from whatever and, and come out of prison and then they enter back into education, it's of their own choice. Yeah. So they're choosing their area that they want to study, whereas school is all about the curriculum yeah, and yeah. you having to sort of, you know And then pass and passing something and failing something. Exactly. And it and it's so tough. I know a lot of people that have gone into recovery and have gone on then to study potentially in the area of expertise around lived experience. They've become counsellors and they've really enjoyed that. However, I know a lot of them have still struggled in the classroom environment. Yeah. But I think the importance and the point of it is, like you said, it's about expanding their mind and continually doing something will you know, ultimately help them and broaden their vocabulary range as well. <laughs> Michael Balligan's later education came from RADA, the world-famous drama school in London. There's some great actors, including Tim Roth, Gary Oldman, who didn't get into RADA, so the fact Michael went there is, is an amazing thing. He was inspired to apply after working at the bar on day release from prison. Have a listen to his amazing account of the epiphany he had while behind bars. People had always told me my whole life, you'd be a good actor. People have always said it. I remember people at RADA saying it. I remember people at school saying it. I remember Miss Mills, you know, the English teacher, Michael, you know, you've got, a, you've got something, I don't know what it is. I remember that things I'd do when some crimes I committed, the lengths I'd go to, fake dreadlocks and hats and that and glasses. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm getting a bit deep. No, no, no. And then out of nowhere, man, I mean, listen, I don't know if any of you guys believe in God or higher powers or whatever, but something came out of nowhere with like acting, like bang. And I can't describe it, bro, but like, I could feel this. I could feel something coming off of me. Genuinely, it, and, it, and it felt whatever it was, it was heavy, but like I could feel it lifting off. And I remember thinking, that is it. It was, I've never been so convicted in my life about something. It was, it was powerful, man. It, I, like my cell was a complete state. I tidied up my cell. This is like four in the morning. So then, literally, this is no word of a lie, man. Please do not, I'm telling you, this is the truth. This is in HMP, um, Maidstone in Kent. The next day, because I, I was getting into a couple of fights before this. I was, no, I was knocking people out, even attacking officers as well, at this point in my sentence. So they were getting a bit concerned about me. They were like, he's getting, a, I was getting a bit much. This woman's come to my cell, drug worker, and she's come to speak to me to tell me that they want to ship me to a prison for mental health. Yeah. But I remember like that night, I've gone through the dark night of the soul. 
Mm-hmm. I, I've been in the cave, the dark cave, you know, we were talking about earlier, and I've come out, yeah? So I'm out of the cave now. So I'm like, I'm like, no, no, I'm absolutely fine. I'm, 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 I'm literally sat like this. I'm like, I'm sat like, I'm like, I'm absolutely fine. Like, no, 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 you don't understand. Smile on my face. I'm like, she's like, why, why am I? She went, I, know what I'm, I know what I want to do with my life. I know what I want to do. She's like, what? I said, like, I want to be an actor. She's like, Michael, see, look, this is the kind of stuff they're concerned about. <laughs> the kind of things you thought I was losing it. I was like, no, 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 no. I was like, no. I was like, no, I'm being dead serious. Like, I want to be an actor. This is what I want to do. You know, I was, I was working at RADA. Like, you know what I mean? Da, 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 da. She was like, okay, okay. She's like, well, do you know what, Michael? What's funny is that I happen to be a part-time drama teacher. It's the first person I've seen since I've made this choice. The first person. Like, you couldn't write that. For Michael, his career change from crime into acting felt like destiny. But of course, going into the world of work after addiction or prison isn't always easy, as Jane Shea explained. When I first got clean, I worked on a flower stall for a couple of years. The, the only difficult thing I found about working there was having to deal with a boss and having to deal with how if I didn't take money one day, then he would be a bit pissed off about that. Obviously, it's his business. And I found that hard to cope with. And that's that kind of coming from that place of always needing approval, needing that codependency, I suppose, that we that is within all of us. That transition from walking out of prison, possibly walking out of prison without addiction for the first time in a long time, to go into a normal career, to go into to a formal situation of work. One, how impossible is it to get the work with the, with the reputation of what you've left behind you? And two, how do you deal with the formality of normal work after, after, after that much time? I mean, it can be difficult. Um, for me, when I left prison, funnily enough, um, a family friend was fitting bathrooms and I went and worked for him as a plumber's mate. Did you? And but he that, knew your situation. And he knew my situation and it was more to get me out of the house, give me a little bit of structure, yeah. give me a bit of cash, you know, mm. in my pocket to give me some sort of normal, you know, like normal stability. And it lasted for maybe a couple of months. And then back into formal work was about volunteering. And I always recommend this to anyone coming out of prison, new in recovery, go and volunteer. Yeah. Volunteering is on so many levels the best thing to do because it gives you an opportunity to experience a type of work that you wouldn't normally have had with no experience, so you don't necessarily need experience to volunteer. It will then give you stability and it will give you a reference on your CV to say that for a period of time you did that and it looks great. And again, it it provides an opportunity. So for me, I went to work for a young person's centre in Wandsworth, which was all about uh, going out onto the big estates, doing outreach. I volunteered there for about six months, then I got... In paid employment I learned so much stuff along the way about honesty open-mindedness willingness you know how to act in certain ways in certain situations mm. which was learning a completely new way because prior to um, coming into recovery any work that I'd done sort of in my teen years and addiction wasn't necessarily honest work yeah. so coming into recovery and out of offending, you know, and on a on a clean sheet, it was all about starting fresh and building those. And I guess networks. you know that the thing with with um, volunteering as well, which I find with the stuff that I do, is it gives you that structure. It forces you to turn up. You know what I mean? You could, if you say you're going to be there at six on Saturday evening, giving out pizzas outside the Ritzy or whatever it is, you've got to be there. You know, and and it gives you that structure and it gives you that social interaction 
with people who've not necessarily had the same story as you, but who are accepting of you no matter what your backstory is. Exactly. And one of the things that we do at Forward Trust is being that stepping stone for people coming out of prisons because it is very difficult. Even today when I go into prisons, I get clients, you know, that are in there that say, you know, I've got a criminal record, no one's going to employ me. How do you disclose your criminal mm-hmm. record to potential employers? And like I said, Forward Trust, we engage with so many different employers across um, England. We provide training for people coming out of prison mm-hmm. around writing an application form. You know, some people have never even applied for yeah. a job in their life. Interview skills, CV building, and then support when they're in employment. Because again, you've got to navigate different situations and people from all walks of life and it is really difficult. So we provide that ongoing mentoring support while they're in education or in um, the work setting to be able to support them to maintain that. Brilliant. Jules, I I remember getting cross with, I was working in Glasgow on uh, Dr Finley's case books and um, I met this family in the pub and they were third generation unemployed, right? The grandfather had lost his job on the docks and the, the father hadn't worked and the, and the son wasn't working and the son had a family and I was like you could be supporting artists you could you could just be like you know in the town I was like that's amazing and you can all do it with the kids it'd be amazing so I got really excited and it was you know with all of them it was like 300 pound a day and I'm like and they went they were crying and they were so excited and I said all you got to do I'll get you the forms all you got to do is fill them in put your photograph on the top of the form and walk into STV on in Calcaddens in Glasgow and hand the form in of course, it never happened. And I was furious. I was like, you, you, how could you not do... And then I met them about nine weeks later and he said, I got to the doors and I couldn't go through the door. I couldn't. I was so scared. I couldn't go through the door. And so when you've got confidence and a, 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 a life like we all have, you forget how hard it is just to do the simplest things and you know how, how overwhelming it can be to put yourself in the frame to try and get a job. And um, once you understand that, you become a lot more patient with the people out there who are struggling. Yeah, no, 100%. Just want to talk about one of the other things we do at Forward around social enterprises. So many people coming out of prison that have been through addiction and offending have got so many fantastic entrepreneurial ideas. Mm. So we've got a social enterprise support system set up. So if people do come to us with business ideas, we can help them build on that, give them tips, ideas, and some of them have flourished and gone on and done fantastic things. Jane ended up finding meaningful work in prisons using her lived experience. This job offer came up um, from the Hepatitis C Trust, which I've been working for them for the last four years. And it was a job in the female prison estate and that came up and kind of basically the credentials were having had experience of addiction, having had experience of prison and having had experience of hepatitis C. So I went for the interview, I got it and then I started going back into prisons and and me and um, Julia, we kind of were up and down the women's prison estate on this kind of two women mission to kind of eliminate hepatitis C from the female prison estates. And it was lovely. And me and her, we met on a prison sentence 15 years before. So so this this whole this whole thing with me and Julia felt like it was meant to be and it felt like we were meant to be together doing this because we both had experience of prison of the stigma that that is attached to hepatitis C in prison and we were going in and talking to these women about this. Here's a bit more from our interview with Liz Jones. 
She stressed the importance of her lived experience in what she does now. Without being the person I was and the, the person I am, without the experiences, there is no way I would be in this role. There's no way my opinion would be as valuable to my colleagues as, as they say it is. You know, again, you know, my past isn't something I'm proud of, but I'm not ashamed of it either. It's it's who I am. One of the great things about using people with lived experience in different works is that, you know, if, if they've been through it, I mean, there's stuff that you can learn in the classroom, you can learn from textbooks, but it's experiential, isn't it? So if you've come through prison, you've been released, you've been part of that system, and I'm just talking about people with lived experience of addiction and, and prison, but there's all kinds of um, lived experience um, that you could apply this to in terms of homelessness mm-hmm. or unemployment, and I just think if you've lived it and you've been there, you can really talk from experience. And I think it's a respect thing as well, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I see people when they see you and then when you explain that you've done time, the prisoners, they change. They change their attitude to you. Yeah, and it, and it sparks some sort of hope as well. I mean, I say it sparks hope with everyone I talk to, but mm-hmm. you see now and again, I've... I was recently in a female prison that we work in and I did a talk and there was a young lady in there. She must have been about 23, 24. And I watched her the whole way through and she looked quite emotional during parts of my my talk. And I talked about being in there, being sat in the chairs they were sat in and how I've come out and, you know, down the other side. And she came up to me afterwards and said, I feel like I was you 20 years ago. Like I'm probably the age that you were when you got clean. And she said, I, I've never thought about coming out of prison and getting my life back. She said, until now, like to see that you've done it, I actually think that I can do it. And it was really powerful and touching. And that's the point of sharing your lived experience as well. But I think it's a real asset to have a mixture of people in the units that have got either lived experience or, you know, have come from academic backgrounds. Yeah, I think that's really cool. Before becoming a vicar, Raf worked in East Kent for Forward. He explained how doing this job helped with a sense of self-worth. Something I'm extremely grateful for the Forward Trust is because for the first time in the UK, an organisation trusted me. They saw the gift that I could sense that I had and they said, we're going to give you an opportunity. And uh, I started working for the Forward Trust and you guys invested on me. Uh, I've done several different trainings uh, for the first time. So reality is it, it helped me not just in recovery, but as a human being just to build uh, my self-worth back to see that I was capable for more. It gave me information that I needed uh, to be doing what I'm doing today. It helped me to develop professionally. You know, I was able to like work with over 150 families in East Kent, you know, and the time I was with the Forward Trust. And uh, that for me was like making amends to society in a way, do you know what I mean? And uh, I loved every bit I've done in that. And uh so I guess what I'm trying to say, Julie, is that, you know, when you come, when you get clean, you're like, you're clean from drugs, but you feel like I don't deserve it. I'm not worth it. Uh, I'm not good enough. I'm not, you know, I was just a criminal. But slowly as people invested in me and they started to study and to develop professionally, uh, I think my self-esteem started to grow. Uh, I started to believe that, you know what, like you are capable, like what your father told you back then is not true. Look at you now. Do you know what I mean? What those people judged you and pointed fingers at you is not true. Look at you now. Do you know what I mean? And I, uh, so I think it helped me to to take my recovery to a new level on the on the sense of like becoming a a, a professional person. Do you know what I mean? Somebody who is a, a productive member of society, let's say. 
Marie Claire ran into barriers before also using her lived experience in her job. She shared some great advice for people looking to overcome difficult pasts. In terms of work and employment opportunities, I I did have knockbacks as a as a result of my criminal convictions. There wasn't just one, there were like three. But I've I've been lucky in terms of I've always I've managed to create self-employed roles for myself. And I think that's typical of a lot of prisoners, you know, a lot of them tend to become tradespeople or, you know, they either keep it to themselves or become self-employed. And that was my journey, really, just to kind of back away from having to tell people and just create my own thing where I could be honest about everything and use it to to make a positive impact in the world as opposed to the negative impact that my crime, you know, had me feeling. Leave a positive legacy. That's what it was all about and help as many people as I can in my lifetime. Really grateful for the work opportunities, but I think we have to be like water because there are obstacles when you're in, you know, in recovery and um, battling addiction or if you're carting around a, a charge sheet as long as your arm, you are going to get knockbacks. There are people that are going to judge you for that. You are going to get discriminated against. So not to take the knockbacks, to kind of try and just be like water around the obstacles and to find your to find your place in the world, really. Fantastic. I liked what you said about being like water. You've got to kind of roll with the punches mm. sometimes. And, it, you know, it's accepting I've got a criminal conviction, you know, maybe five sheets long, and this might prevent me from X, Y and Z, but it's about finding your passion, isn't it? Yeah. The obstacles we sometimes imagine, sometimes we are our own biggest obstacle. For example, there was another woman that I was in prison with who is now a primary school teacher, not a teaching assistant, a primary school teacher, and I thought she'd lied and, you know, was committing fraud. She just sat a panel. She had to tell the governors what she'd done and she got the job on her, on her merits. So when I say be like water, yeah, have big aspirations, dream big, do what you want to do because, you know, unless we're being unrealistic. So yeah, don't, don't think that anything is out of reach because actually uh, everything is in reach. To come to the end of the episode and realise that confidence is, is what everything is and um, how you gain that confidence is by people telling you you're good at what you do and by saying you're needed and you're necessary and that you're doing something that, that's useful and helpful. 100%. And just thinking about meaningful employment is, for me, so important. I, I've got so many you know friends and acquaintances that would say they're not in meaningful employment and they're just, you know, they've got a job because it pays a wage mm-hmm. and, you know, feeling really ground down by that. But sometimes you get trapped in the rat race of work to pay the rent, pay the bills, and there's no gap or space for you to sort of step outside. And I think it's really important that people are given opportunities, you know. So, for instance, you're stuck in a a job that you wouldn't find meaningful, maybe go and retrain, look at, you know, further education courses after work to be able to support that. And that's another great reason for volunteering. Well, that's the quick fix, isn't it? Yeah. Go and, and volunteer, start that way. And it might lead to what happened with Jules, which is, you know, that then becomes a way of sustaining your life. Yeah. If you're interested in hearing more about the More Than My Past campaign and viewing dozens more inspirational stories, check out the campaign website, morethanmypast.org.uk. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends, subscribe and look out for future episodes.